Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror stories, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. This episode, on the 1978 short story collection Night Shift, has content warnings for misogyny, fat phobia, ableism, infection and disease, child and infant death, coercion and rape, cults and indoctrination, suicide including assisted suicide, murder, drug abuse and alcoholism, and cancer and long-term illness. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome to Just King Things, the show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order and then talk about them. Uh, I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael. Uh-huh. I'm drinking evil beer at you. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, um, if that's the case, then you're going to be erased from my memory by a much better version of a similar premise later on. Is that true? Does he do this again? Uh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll explain that. Uh, mm. uh, you know what's really great to start your podcast is to open with a joke that not even your co-host can get because it is built on something like not even not the listener not the co-host but it's going to be based on something that's going to happen in like 40 minutes you think if you remember to make it happen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's uh it's how history's greatest mysteries are accomplished <laughs> as we all know it's just like uh. opening uh it's like when they open those uh crypts you know like beneath the pyramids <laughs> <laughs> and they're and there's like and they're wearing like uh uh like Marx Brothers glasses. The, the people opening the crypts or the people in the crypts? People in the crypts. <laughs> they put those glasses on thousands of years ago just to get us. It's just, just they're not, they're gonna have no idea what happened. Yeah. Those archaeologists, they're gonna laugh. <laughs> they're gonna they're going, Oh, this is the greatest find of my career. Oh gosh, we're we're seeing this, and then they see it and they just burst out laughing can't help themselves it's the same thing is what's about to happen on this show <laughs> uh because what we are going to do is we're going to, to bust open the crypt of history and talk about stephen king's first short story collection night shift from 1978 yeah um it's it this is this was not the first Stephen King short story collection that I read. It, what was the first one you read? Uh, Skeleton Key. Skeleton Key? Ske Skeleton Crew. Crew. That one. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the first one I read. And, and what's a little bit interesting to me is, uh, I guess I must have read this one right after that or, or very, very close because there's a lot of stories that I thought were in this collection. Um, mm. Or thought were in the other collection. You know, I, So I've transposed a bunch of these in, in my old brain. Um, but, uh, but the reason I, the reason I say that is that, uh, there's a lot of, um, I would say, uh, uh, archetypal Stephen King in this, in this book. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the best Stephen King in, in this book in a general sense. And I have, I guess we'll talk about our method in just a second, but I did not get the opportunity to focus in on what I might call the best stories in this collection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but certainly an interesting book. Yeah, so uh, to touch on both of the things you said, first off, uh, it is probably not, uh, it. I, I think it's very normal to sort of mix up this book and Skeleton Crew. Uh, Skeleton Crew, I think, is much longer, but I know that uh, about four or five of the stories in Skeleton Crew were stories that were up for inclusion in this collection. Uh, so the circumstances mm. under which Night Shift come to, comes to exist is uh, Stephen King has been contracted for, you know, a, a number of novels or whatever, a number of books through Doubleday. Uh, and the book that he is currently working on, because we've just we've just finished uh, The Shining, we've pulled our trunk out of the of the closet and we've got the Bachman thing going on uh and that's like a different contract right that doesn't count toward his his Stephen King contract uh the book that Stephen King is writing in 1977-78 is The Stand and he realizes he's not going to be able to finish it in time uh to to make his contract work and so he uh, with his agent talks the the publisher into letting him do a short story collection. And so they go into his archives, uh, and you've already mentioned this, I think, in, in some ways, right? Which is, uh, the the there's like primordial Stephen King stuff in all of these short stories that he's just been selling kind of to, to make his name, to make money. Uh, there's there's a uh, really good Stephen King stuff in here and also some not so great, like early experiment Stephen King stuff in here. And we'll probably talk about all of that uh, because our method for this episode, uh, again, touching on your illusion, uh, we decided to do something different because if we, we could probably talk about one of these short stories for an entire two hours, we could have, I don't, there's 20 stories in here. We could do, 20 episodes, one on each short story. Do you agree? Uh, I don't have that much to say about Battleground, so no. <laughs> I don't think I can talk for a lot of time about But yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And I'm sure we'll talk about the fact that so many of these stories were optioned for film and things like that. Um, and I think it's because they're so evocative, right? I mean, I think a lot of these stories mm-hmm. just work on a really kind of powerful level. And, you know, that probably has to do with, as you were just saying, right, these are things that he sold already to uh, places like Cavalier, I think Hustler too, maybe, or maybe Hustler might not have existed uh, at this time, but kind of like what, what I don't know what we called them in the US, right, but like lad mags, you know, <laughs> men's magazines, I guess. Um, that's kind of like the universe that Stephen King was in. He wasn't, you know, this is not a guy who was publishing in like, you know, Asimov's science fiction or something like that. Yeah, uh, that's some some in, some important and interesting context. Uh, the majority, the vast majority of the stories here were originally published. The ones that were originally published, some of them are published first time here, um, but the vast majority mm-hmm. of them are published in Cavalier, um, which is a a a lad mag, right? It is it is like Penthouse uh, or Hustler or something like that. It's a, a pornographic magazine or a skin magazine. Uh, I think is maybe the the common term in in the U.S. Uh, most of them are published in Cavalier. Um, one of them is published in Penthouse. 
uh, and one is published in Gallery. So those are three different uh, skin mags. In fact, uh, the only stories in this book that are not original that, that were published but were not originally published in in one of those magazines are um one for the road which was published in main magazine and i know what you need which was published in cosmopolitan and sort of notably both of yeah. those were published post carry essentially right stephen king publishes a novel and those are the only two stories in this collection that get published uh as like you know care like the author of carrie stephen king yeah those are both very interesting locations to publish those specific stories mm -hmm. um yeah i guess that's something and there was maybe not a lot to say about it but something that hasn't really come up in the show so far is that when stephen king before he was quote-unquote stephen king like you were like you're talking about right the author of carrie you know he's he's selling stories you know to kind of build up his portfolio and and his uh, image and in his kind of i don't know writerly persona and you know obviously to make money too um and those are almost entirely being routed through the kind of you know literally the articles in in uh -huh. porn mags right uh -huh. um and there's something about stephen king in a general sense right that maybe that's the gratuitousness that we've talked about right the like mm. salaciousness of Stephen King that makes him work so well is he's like uh, Stephen King is unafraid to show it all to you. You know, I mean, it's a it's a um, it's body genre, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the the format for this for this show then for us to to kind of try to give each of these stories some amount of time. And this may be this may be what we do for all future short story collections. It may be a thing we revise. Who knows? We're figuring this out, folks. Um, but how this is going to work uh, is Cameron and I have read all of the stories, uh, mm -hmm. but we focused our attentions on different ones. And basically, we took turns. We alternated. I focused on the first story. He took the second. Uh, I took the next one and so on. And how this discussion is going to work uh, is we are going to go through the stories in order, um, and each of us will uh, take the story that we focused on and uh, do three things with it. Thing number one, a summary uh, in about a sentence, right? The point is to keep it short, so tell us what the story is about. The second part is some sort of king connection. What is the king thing about this story, right? How does this fit into his his uh, broader body of work, or uh, what is the what is a connection? What is what is a line that you liked? Something that is just you know what is the king thing about it? Um, and then our third point is the story any good? Did you like it or not? Yes or no? Uh, we then have a chance to agree or disagree. We won't go into it in too much detail at that point. We're just going to mark it like this is a thing we agree on or it's a thing we disagree on. And then uh, at the end of the show, we will have a segment where we talk through our disagreements. Uh, if if uh, that seems like it's a thing that if we have enough disagreements to talk through, we might. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This seems. It, it It's going to be something I tried to I tried to write one sentence summaries. It's hard to do. <laughs> but, but but I guess the other thing, you know, as I am, it's obviously clearly I'm I'm a master of summarizing. Um, but the the thing that I found interesting is that Stephen King kind of works because a lot of his stories have just a thesis statement, 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's the whole story. <laughs> the the whole thing is really just writing some additional words about the thesis statement, right? It's not like very rarely does uh, or do, for example, characters change over the course of a Stephen King story, right? A short story, yeah. At least. Yeah, and that's um, a thing that I think we'll probably get to, right? Is that his his story? Stephen King's stories have a lot of continuity with the novels, but then they're also uh, like they're very different in the sense that uh, they are almost totally like premise or plot at, at this point, mm-hmm. at least. I think he starts doing other things later um, where he gets more into character and short story, uh, but these are just like you know pure conceptual plot. Yeah, and I think that maybe that also has to do, too, with just how many of these these stories. And I think people are going to be really surprised by how many of these stories have become films and film franchises and things like that. But it's, uh, you know, they're all very, what we would call in the film industry, high concept, right? Which is like, um, you know, they're robots in disguise, right? High concept for the Transformers, <laughs> right? Like, whatever they do and whatever happens after that is really secondary to robots in disguise, uh, uh, oil derrick workers go and blow up a meteor. High concept, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're bad boys in Miami. High concept. <laughs> um, uh, but and and that's how a lot of these work too. Um, and I think you can see really easily how they would get pitched, right? Like there are trucks and they take over the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the other thing to actually, I think, probably touch on, too, is that a lot of these are uh, I've talked in previous episodes about King's love of like EC horror comics, Tales from the Crypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and these have a lot of that kind of flavor to them of here is a situation with a character you're not supposed to care about too much um, mm-hmm. and something bad is going to happen to them and it's going to be delicious and ironic and, and, you know, uh, chilling or whatever. Um, or, you know, in, in other ways, more, more twilight zoney. Although I don't think he necessarily, I don't think many of these stories get into the, uh, the sort of like philosophical, uh, mode that the twilight zone, uh, is known for. But, uh, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's some stuff here that edges in that direction. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, do you want to you want to take it off and and start with our first one here? All right. <clears throat> Story number one, Jerusalem's Lot. This Lovecraft pastiche takes the form of a diary left by a 19th century New England man who has recently taken up residence in the ancestral home of an estranged branch of his family, only to discover that his ancestors worshipped a monstrous worm god and now live with it in the catacombs beneath the nearby deserted village of Jerusalem's Lot. Uh... What's the king thing here? Obviously, Jerusalem's Lot. This is a a location that comes back in the novel Salem's Lot. Uh, In fact, if if you've read Salem's Lot and then you're reading this short story, um, you might think that the ancestral home uh, that the narrator has moved into is the Marston House, which it can't be because we we get a, like, construction date for the Marston House and all this stuff. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, like, the, the connections here, other than the name of the town being the same, uh, are, are pretty slim. Uh, some of the monsters get called Nosferatu, but they don't act like uh, Salem's Lot vampires. They act like zombies. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of uh, King, as I, I already said in the summary, it's a Lovecraft pastiche. Um, H.P. Lovecraft, who, who uh, famously reuses various cities and locations to kind of build a sustained mythology in his work. And we see King doing that here. 
is this story any good? No. Uh, <laughs> I King is really, really bad at writing in the Lovecraftian style. Uh, that's not to say he's not he's bad at writing Lovecraftian content because there's there's actually stories later in this collection that I think do Lovecraft better um, than than this story does. And it shows you how King can do Lovecraft. But I think he gets uh, really thwarted by trying to write in the in the 19th century antiquarian antiquated mode. Uh, there's like a part it like actually one of the more interesting bits of the story is when the narrator because you're reading his diary. Uh, finds a his his ancestors diary from the the 18th century and so you're reading a diary within the diary except the the 18th century writing is the like nails on a chalkboard bad like i don't know how people wrote in the 18th century and so i'm just going to capitalize random nouns and try to make it seem really really old Mm. Uh, but anyway yeah it's it's kind of it's not great i don't like it yeah i unfortunately i agree with you um i in my memory really enjoyed the like i enjoy the concept of this story a lot Mm -hmm. right it's got all the pieces i like a lot right it's got this kind of dracula form right this epistolary novel Mm. form of letters back and forth And, and also that's obviously lovecraft does that kind of stuff too but um I think that King is is melding or trying to meld those styles in interesting ways. He's not successful. I think you're right. I don't think he manages to do it. Um, I think that it's um, it, it shows exactly where, like as far as Stephen King can go down the Lovecraft path, by which I mean that um, King can give you, King can't help but describe the monster to you. Like mm-hmm. King can't help but give you all of the 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 EC comic you know uh, uh, information, right? He can't help but describe the face of the monster and like the guy at the end reaching up out of the catacombs and he's you know this mm-hmm. ancient worm ridden wizard. Um, you know, it's um, he can't help but show you the heavy metal album cover <laughs> <laughs> that that is the story concept, right? And I like the story concept, but what makes Lovecraft work, right? And, and I say this, you know, for, for the listener, I say this bracketed by all the things that, that are truly awful about H.P. Lovecraft, right? But mm-hmm. and, and when Michael and I are talking about kind of Lovecraft and what is being borrowed here, um, it's undeniable that there's a massive kind of impact that Lovecraft has on both horror and fantasy and science fiction or on all three of those things in different ways. And so King is so clearly borrowing from that tradition but you're right he he can't sink the shot um and and ultimately it's because his interests about what a horror story does go a different way um Mm -hmm. and um you know i i think even places where he uh later in his career when he is uh really trying to do the lovecraft thing there's the story about like the abandoned field um Oh yeah, is yeah, that yeah. in? Is that the story in? in? Yeah, um, that people really say is like, oh, he finally did it. Like this is the Lovecrafty and Stephen King, and even that is like not there. Mm-hmm. That's a good story when we get there in, in you know six years. But um, I'm, I'll be happy to read <laughs> it again. But it is not um, anyway. We shouldn't be talking this much. I'm sorry. I just did that. I I've made the huge mistake that we said that we would do this format not to do. I agree with you, Michael. It's not very good. Mm-hmm. Now you tell me about the next story. Hmm. 
The next story is Graveyard Shift, um, which I guess this and then the next story, they stapled those together to make Night Shift into the title of the short story collection. Yeah, it seems like it. (laughs) Um, Although it could have been called Graveyard Shift. That's like an appropriate, scary time. Anyway. um, All right. Well, here's my summary. In this story, an overeducated factory worker is hired by factory bosses to clean the basement of the factory. There he discovers (laughs) that he can fight rats or lose his job. They discover a hidden basement beneath that basement, older than the factory, where giant mutant rats live. He feeds his foreman to the rats, and he also <laughs> dies. <laughs> that's what happens. Like that's a hundred percent. That is the uh, the uh, the story. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about on this show. We've talked about in uh, game study study buddies the difference between story and discourse. That's the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so my second thing here is um, uh, the kingy thing here is that after all what I just said happens, there's like a stinger at the end, right? Mm -hmm. And the stinger at the end is like a little two or three paragraphs, and it's like the other workers talking to each other and like, gosh, they went down in that sub-basement, and they haven't come back yet. And the guy's like, oh, I bet bet their flashlights went out or something. Let's follow them down there. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) it very clearly is Stephen King, you know, doing his thing that we've seen him do a few times of like, you know, the 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 working man's just going to do what the working man can. They don't want to lose their job. You know, their boss is down there, and so they're going to follow them literally into being eaten by mutant rats. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, for, as far as my thoughts about it in the end, uh, it's pretty good. I'm not mad about it. Yeah, I agree. This is like yeah, this it's like good like EC horror comics. Here's a situation. Here's some monsters, and here's how the people die. Yeah, and he like, you know, he has fun with the monsters in a way that I really like that we'll see a lot in Stephen King later of like, you know, some of them are, they think they're bats, but they find out, oh no, it's just rats with wings. <gasps> mm-hmm. And there's like uh, rats without legs. They've like evolved not to have legs. There's some that are blind because they've never come up. The, the implication is like, maybe this was a smuggling operation beneath the factory or something like that, like predates the factory. So there's that kind of like, you know, the past beyond and we don't have enough information. I don't know. It's just got a good, it's got a good feel to it um, that I think uh, is not present necessarily in a lot of these other stories, which makes it feel, makes it a good story in a general sense, I think, but also makes it a, a pretty good story in comparison to the other things in this collection. I, you know, obviously I read these in order, but I actually felt, more confident that I liked this story after I read the rest of the collection. <laughs> um, you know, because uh, I was like, oh, dang, that was pretty good. But yeah, that's my that's my evaluation of Graveyard Shift. Story number three is Night Surf. After a global pandemic has apparently wiped out most of humanity, a bunch of shitty 70s teenagers hang out on a deserted beach and slowly realize that they too will eventually die. Uh, the King connection here uh, is that obviously people dying in a in a big pandemic is the one of the inciting incidents for the next book we're going to read, The Stand. And in fact, The Stand uh, is grows out of King wanting to write more stories set in this specific world. I believe he has said that mm-hmm. in interviews. Um, and even in the story, the the sort of like 
like slang name for the the disease in the same way that for instance we're calling coronavirus say like the rona or something uh the 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 slang name for the the virus here is uh captain trips which is the precise same name that recurs in the stand even though continuity wise these two stories are actually very um distinct but they have in some ways a kind of similar mood uh is this story any good? Yes, I think so, actually. Um, and when I say that the the teenagers are shitty, I mean, like, the narrator, it's, it's written first person, is, like, this really greasy kid who uh, has this girl that he's sleeping with, and he is, like, hugely misogynist about her, and it's not really clear to what extent, like, we're supposed to be aware of his misogyny. Um, so that's, like, a little caveat, but, like... Uh, you know, the, the thing about this that feels very genuine to me is that I think Stephen King can write, like, a shitty teenager actually very well. Uh, in, in distinct contrast to what we saw in, in Rage, where everything felt very cardboard, uh, this kind of felt, like, the desolation here to me at least felt uh, believably, like, shitty teen. Yeah, because it's it's not just a... It's, it's like... It's not an apocalypse story, I guess, because, like, for the most part, people have died, but it's, like, a right after, you know, the very beginning of the post-apocalypse. Um, you know, they because the story begins with them, you know, talking about burning someone on the beach who is <laughs> infected with Captain Trips, right? So it's, like, the social order has completely broken down, um, but it's, like, thing, you know, but there's still food everywhere, and they have, like, you know, a lot of cigarettes. They have, like, 500 cartons of cigarettes <laughs> that they've looted. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. There, This actually made me think that there's, like, almost this, like, wave function for Stephen King with, like, his ability to write believable characters because it's, like, Stephen King cannot. We're, we're beginning at the very bottom. You know, if, if our vertical thing here is, like, uh, capability of writing right if our y is capability of writing and then <laughs> our x is like age right it like starts at the bottom and that's like zero through ten stephen king cannot write these ages and he'll never <laughs> figure it out and then it's like 11 through 20 does a great job like a plus we're all the way at the top and then it's like 20 to 35 back at the bottom again like, <laughs> cannot cannot manage it and then it's like someone in their 40s and 50s right back at the top he's doing a great job <laughs> and then it's like anyone over the age of 60 right back at the bottom <laughs> Stephen King cannot manage it and it's like almost perfectly mappable I might I might make this uh, as as a thing and start just populating with characters because it's it's kind of astonishing but i agree i i mean when you when you said um the desolation that you can feel that you know mm -hmm. i think some of that has to do with that character being just such a jackass i mean he's both a misogynist and he's like making fun of her for being fat the whole time mm -hmm. um and there's something going on with that kind of in the story that actually I think also shows up in it. I think this kind of idea gets revisited again in some characters in it. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, I think I think it's really good. I think that if like we're thinking of stories that you could excerpt and just read alone and like really talk about and think about, I think this is one of those. Mm -hmm. I am the doorway. You are. I'm. That's me. <laughs> well, I hope not because it goes it goes really poorly for this guy. Hmm. Okay, summary. Man goes to space, comes back, infected with aliens. Hijinks ensue. It's basically it. 
That's basically what happens. In okay. Um, no, he, he uh, man goes to space. Uh, he's part of uh, the the one of the last like manned space flights to Venus for at least a certain administration. He comes back, and several years later, uh, he has um, eyeballs appear all over his hands. And when the, and those eyeballs open, uh, bad things happen to other people. And he believes he is quote unquote the doorway for these creatures from Venus coming to kill people. And at the end of the story, he burns his hands. He like puts them in a, um, he like douses them in kerosene and burns them, uh, to get rid of all these eyeballs. And then he's having an okay life. And the end of the story, this is the, the EC comics kind of thing. This is the, the, you know, horror fiction kind of part of it. He says he wakes up one day and he's got a perfect ring of eyeballs in the middle of his chest. And so it's this idea that he's infected with something. Yep. Uh, Um, uh, the king thingy, kingy thing here is that there's a line at the very beginning where they're talking about going to Venus and kind of orbiting Venus. And the quote, uh, that's, the way that King writes that is he says, it, it was like circling a haunted house in deep space. Um, <laughs> and I really like that. Like, it's really, really good. Um, it is. Uh, and, and there's a little bit of, um, um, gosh, what's the name of the uh, Event Horizon? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right, that's the you know like literally a haunted house in space. Yes, yes, um, quite literally the uh, the the pitch for that that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's great. That movie's anyway. I don't want to get off off track, but that movie's great. Um, uh, but yeah, that really did it. Also, the other thing this is maybe a, a, a Kingian negative, right? Is that this person uh, because of the way he re-enters the atmosphere and it, it kills his um, co-pilot and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he's in a wheelchair throughout the entire mm. thing, and this is. Um, deeply offensive, I think, to people who use wheelchairs. Um, Stephen King cannot, he does not handle, I don't know about cannot, but does not write that in a way that is charitable or uh, nice to people in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. Now, this story is very ableist. Um. Yes. Um, And uh, is is it good or not? Um, This is the first one that I read, obviously, after a, a you know, reading a couple of these, this is the first one I read where like the question of what is good or not in a Stephen King story, like really kind of hit me because I think this is like almost the prototypical Stephen King short story. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it follows the exact pattern that is in so many of these stories. And it's going to be in so many of Stephen King's stories across the board is short stories, right? It's like, here's a problem. Here's the interesting way that the problem appeared in the world. Here's like two or three incidents where that problem like makes issues for people and then at the end the person dies you know and that's mm-hmm. just you know the way stephen king writes short stories and so like in that regard it it's a perfect execution of how stephen king writes a short story would i want to read this again no <laughs> so you know that's i think it's important to like introduce that conundrum of stephen king and that like this hits all the good stephen king marks however i did not enjoy reading it and would not want to read it again. So I guess it is bad. Um, but I'm I'm ambivalent about it. I would say uh, I agree. Um, the, this is when I said uh, at the beginning that there are places where Stephen King does Lovecraft better. This is one of the places I would point, uh, just because mm-hmm. the way that the the narrator talks about the way he is conscious of the the aliens in him and like the like when they look out on the world they are afraid and they hate what they see and he can like feel their consciousness in his own um 
it's a very kind of Lovecraftian way of thinking. It's very much like uh, his short story, The Shadow Out of Time, um, which is about aliens sort of like taking over people's minds. Uh, but it's like he gets at that sort of feeling a lot better when he's not <laughs> uh, crushing himself under under trying to like emulate a 19th century prose style. Yeah. The Mangler. A police detective investigates strange events surrounding an industrial laundry press that, it turns out, through a string of bizarre coincidences, has become possessed by a demon. It does not go well for anyone. Uh, the King connection here, the King thing, is the laundry press, uh, which we've already seen, in fact. We saw that in Carrie, because Margaret White worked at uh, a laundry outfit, much in the way, uh, much like the one, uh, the Blue Ribbon Laundry, uh, here in this story. And, of course, that is because Stephen King himself worked in one of these places, and so they actually had an industrial press that they called the Mangler, and he thinks to himself, ah, there's a short story. And is it any good? Yes, this story fucking rules. It, like, what you just said about uh, I Am the Doorway being kind of like a, a prototypical King story, I agree. I think the Mangler is that, but, like, actually just, like, straight up good, right? Like, if I wanted to tell someone what is, like, what is what is good about a Stephen King story, it's, it's this, right? It's this thing that shouldn't be haunted, and guess what, buddy? It is. <laughs> Yeah, the story fucking rips. It's so good. Um, and it's good because of the kind of mechanics of it, right? Like, the the, <laughs> the laundry machine gets haunted, becomes haunted, or or uh, is possessed by a demon, I guess, actually, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because of, like, a Baroque series of events. And what I really like about that, or like about the story, is that it uses the mechanisms that we that we've pointed out right in Carrie and in Salem's Lot in order to kind of demonstrate how it gets haunted right so this narratorial voice sometimes like bounces out of the story to tell us about like basically the accidental summoning ritual that occurred in the laundry machine mm -hmm. it's just great no it's it's, it's a great, great story it's it's great. It's just like this person like cut their thumb and blood got on the thing. And then this person happened to like drop their pills in and the pills had this particular compound, which was used in demon summoning rituals in the 14th century. And it's, it's great. <laughs> and there's a, uh, 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 what you, a college professor who like drops everything and becomes a demonologist overnight. <laughs> Yes, yes. the 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 main character is the the police inspector, and he like has a a friend that he sees at cookouts, who's this college professor who just like like literally like from one scene to the other, he starts out. He's a college professor, and he's just like, "Hmm, that reminds me of some demon summoning rituals." The next time they see each other, you've got a demon in that laundry machine, son. <laughs> it's great, uh, but yeah, I agree. I I think this is like. I know that the mangler comes up like culturally as like a silly idea, you know, regularly. I think actually people brought that up with us when that came up on Waypoint a while back. Mm -hmm. um, but here to report, the story's good. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing is that the movie is like huge and goofy and conceptually very weird. But like when mm. Steve, like the thing about Stephen King, right, is that when he is firing on all cylinders, you will believe that a laundry machine can be haunted. When everyone else was trying to make you believe that a man could fly, mm -hmm. 
Stephen King was putting all of his energy into making you believe that a laundry machine could be haunted. <laughs> oh, the boogeyman. Michael, 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 Michael. The mm-hmm. boogeyman. A traditional American man's children die one by one because he cannot be anything other than a traditional American man. The boogeyman's getting them. That's the story. <laughs> yep. Um, it's, he's like in therapy and he's just being a real jackass about everything, right? So it's like he can hear his children crying at night, you know, because they're being attacked by this figure in the closet, the boogeyman, but he can't go and help them because it would make them weak. Um, and he can't like listen to his wife because that would make him look weak, right? So it's like Stephen King, you know, uh, very two-dimensionally being like, the 1960s American man is insufficient. I need to work on a main accent so I can start doing mm-hmm. a Stephen King. Um, for I'll, for I'll the record, uh, every time you try to do uh, a, a voice on this show where you're like doing one of Stephen <laughs> King's like little little like main hicks and you put on your mm-hmm. southern accent, my, my mm-hmm. wife, who is a New Englander, will be listening and she'll just be like, that's not what a main accent is. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's just a southern accent, but up there. Right? <laughs> I read I read the dialect in the books. It's got to be true, okay. Um, but uh, but no, I'll I'll work on it between now. I, this is my pledge to you, dear dear listener. Uh, I will I will work on my main accent. But but it's him, right? Just trying to kind of very two dimensionally say it is the problems and the the uh, you know the inadequacies of the the traditional American masculine jackass man that causes mm-hmm. all this violence and terror to happen. Um, the Stephen Kingy kind of thing here is that at the end, so this, the whole story is told as a, basically a monologue to his therapist. And at the end, wouldn't you know it, that the therapist is the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. It's, it's perhaps the worst ending of it for a man who is known for not being able to end things. Well, this is maybe the worst ending that Stephen King has written. Uh, it's not good. It's terrible. It's a terrible story. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an EC horror comic in not not in the worst sense of the word because those could be very gratuitous of course and this isn't that gratuitous but it's just like yep mm-hmm <laughs> so agree yeah. yeah not for me gray matter a bunch of crotchety old main men who hang out at a local store learn from a young boy that his father, a known alcoholic, has turned into a massive blob creature after drinking some tainted beer. Uh, obviously, this is what we were referencing in the intro. Uh, the King connection here uh, is the the old men sitting around at the local store. Um because that is a, it's a thing that we've seen in Salem's Lot. It's a thing that we're going to see again in this collection. And that's what I was referring to when I said that there are better versions of this kind of story in this very collection. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, but then also, of course, like this, uh, this issue of alcoholism, uh, which isn't treated with any particular, uh, you know, gravity necessarily in this situation. But it is a thing that recurs throughout his work um, in greater or lesser degrees. Uh, and mm-hmm. is it any good? As I said, meh. Like it's not. It's not boogeyman bad. Um, but as there are better versions of this story that could have been told, because it's it's similarly just kind of predictable to me. This is our first disagreement, Michael. Uh oh. I think the story is great. Okay. 
All right, I'm marking it down. We will debate this uh, in the conclusion. Okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you... Uh, I didn't think about the connection. That, that's why I guess I was confused at the beginning, uh, where I didn't where I didn't get the joke. Um, because, yeah, you're absolutely right about the, um, the kind of dudes hanging out at a bar um, being a thing in Stephen King's world. Um, I don't get mm-hmm. the sense that Stephen King did that very often. Um, no. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't, you know, I, and this is before Cheers, so I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> People didn't hang he, out in bars before then. No, they invented it. Um, <laughs> Ted Danson invented hanging out in bars in 1984. We all know that. But uh, I guess what's interesting, and maybe, you know, this, this is an effect of me reading these, uh, you know, as like a tween. But uh, I assume that when I grew up, I would get into all kinds of hijinks in bars, right? You'd just be hanging out in a bar and like, <laughs> stuff would happen and you would like have to go and deal with it, right? Uh, but that's not true. You go to bars and you just drink and there's like nothing that happens. Steve, if you are listening, you have so much to answer for. You have given us outsized expectations for what was going to happen when we went to the local bar. Yeah, I thought, oh, I'm going to go there and there's going to be people trying to get a posse together all the time to <laughs> go to go and solve problems. And there's not. There's just, you know, uh, beers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, lunch specials. <laughs> IPAs. Too many of them. <laughs> They're not good. No, no. I've had so many just waiting on things to happen in bars. Anyway. Um, but, uh, this is a real short one, Battleground. Um, the summary is short and sweet. A hitman is attacked by a bunch of toy soldiers. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my, um, king, kingism here. Uh, This is kind of a meta kingism, but I think it's an important one because this is also going to show up in, in lots of forms in Stephen King. Uh, the kingism here is that this is an extremely bad idea that is pursued as if it's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, he is writing his heart out. Like, there's nothing wrong with the writing here. You know, the concept is taken very seriously. But at the end, it is about a hitman who receives a box of toys of little soldiers who get out and attack him. <laughs> That's it. That's what the story is. That is not a good idea mm-hmm. for a story. Um, and my my evaluation is that the story is awful. <laughs> this is really bad. It's not a good story. I I agree. It is uh, again it, it it reads like another like little EC story. Um, and I think actually it would work better if it were a comic because then at least you could see like all the little soldiers and things. Uh, but as it is, as you have to imagine it, it's just, it, it feels absurd, right? Like a hitman, uh, like kills a toy maker and then gets cursed with toy soldiers who then I should like, I just to, 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 to add weight to your claim that this is like a bad idea just pursued as far as possible. They then like detonate a toy nuke mm-hmm. and that's how they kill him. And that's how the story ends. Yes. Yeah. A, a miniature to scale, you know, whatever um, new thermonuclear weapon is what, what kills him. Yeah, the, I, I think the comparison to a comic book is really important because if this were in a comic book, it would be like a backup to a backup story mm-hmm. and it would be two pages and that would be fine. Mm-hmm. The, this is a two-page comic book story stretched out to like 4,000 words and like that 
is not working out. It is just so thick. I mean, maybe that's the problem, right? And something that you have pointed out so many times that I think is very accurate is that Stephen King is very good at taking something that is absurd and making it scary. There is no attempt at horror in this story. It's an action story, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I don't even know. I mean, yeah, basically, I mean, it's, it's a battle story, I guess, a combat story. Mm-hmm. It's the entire thing. It's just the fight, you know, other than a, a few paragraphs at the beginning. And because this absurdity is not turned toward horror in any way, it just doesn't doesn't do anything for me. It's bad. Uh, trucks. A group yes. of people in a roadside diner watch as all of the trucks in the world apparently become sentient and autonomous, and human survivors, including the, the narrator, uh, are eventually forced into servitude operating the gas pumps. So much for humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the King connection here, uh, obviously haunted vehicles. Uh, is a, a a sort of other known King story is Christine, which is about a literally haunted car. Uh, these these trucks are not haunted. In fact, um, one of the things that is nice about this story is that there is no reason provided for why this happens. Like, it is just one day all of the trucks started driving themselves, and that is it. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is, that is a, a good King thing about it as well, I think. There's a... Uh, something that I've been wanting to mention on the show for a while um, that I think makes King not necessarily, maybe important, I don't know, but um, I think sort of unique. It, for someone who at, who is as um, culturally like visible and successful and well-known as he is, uh, King can be a real nihilist about some things. Uh, you said in the Salem's Lot episode, right, sometimes, sometimes, you know, the good guys can take every proper precaution, they can do things as well as they as they possibly can, and it just doesn't work out. Um, and that, it's not like there's a lot of precautions being taken in this story, uh, but it has a similar kind of, like, bleakness to it, where, uh, and it's, it's clear, right, that I think King probably got this idea during the, the gas shortages, um, mm-hmm. uh, because he, where there's the scene where the, the narrator is, um, you know, filling up the cars and he can look up and he can just see the line of cars waiting to be filled. Uh, and, and so you get that moment of, uh, real, like sort of materially palpable bleakness, uh, that you just don't normally see a lot in, in like a mainstream writer, right? Just the idea that, yeah, no, like we have created these things and they have destroyed our world and now we are slaves to them. Is this good? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great story. I like it a lot. I I think that the, there's something that I, I've never really thought about uh, before, but that, that you know you're bringing up by the Salem Slot reference and something we're going to see a lot more times uh, in Stephen King is that a big thing that he likes to do is like have characters put a plan together and then you know have that go step by step and then us watch it kind of go wrong mm-hmm. in some way. Um, I think that's a really like big tool in his his tool belt that he likes to use pretty often. I think it's really effective because it gives us you know we know what the stakes are. Something bad's going to happen if they don't do it. We know exactly what they're trying to do. And then when it goes wrong, it gives them all these opportunities to like talk about specifically what happens and then the, the impact of it. And this story like really hinges on that, right? Like these people, once they realize what's going on, 
they try to do the best they can, but like they're human beings and they are fallible and it just kind of falls apart. And then like you're saying, people end up, you know, basically, you know, their solution at the end is like, well, maybe we'll just go back to the caves. Mm -hmm. But, and then he says, well, shit, they'll probably just pave the whole world. Yep. (laughs) And so, yeah, extremely, extremely bleak stuff. I also think too, that the other thing that you said that I think is really important is that for Stephen King's contemporaries, both at the time and then in the 80s, too, when the kind of horror, because the horror boom is happening in the 70s and the early 80s, but like after that time period where people like Dean Koontz become also big sellers, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're selling a lot even outside of the, the horror market just to people. A lot of that kind of horror is like, oh, there's a magic necklace that's cursed that's like causing all this. Or there's like, oh, one haunted grave. Mm -hmm. And like, you just don't get those explanations in Stephen King sometimes. Sometimes things are just happening and they're bad and you just have to respond to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas a lot of other horror writers seem to really try to give you a logical reason why things are happening. And Stephen King just doesn't always find that necessary. And I think that that is what makes him pretty special. And I think Trucks is a really good example of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes they come back. Um, A teacher gets beaten up by some greaser students as a kid, and his brother dies. When he's an adult, those greasers come back, and he summons a demon to kill them. Um, the, The king thing here is that on page 150 of my volume, he says, quote, It made Central Street vocational trades look like darkest Africa. He's talking about the the kind of differences between student populations that he has um i don't know if i don't i don't like this story i didn't i don't enjoy reading it i think that it's a well done story like i don't have any problems with it in a, in a general sense um i my i think my real substantive comment about it is that i think that a later stephen king would be able to write this story better because mm-hmm. it's about childhood trauma right it's about his 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 brother dying as a kid it's about these like greaser kids who killed his brother um, coming back and terrorizing him as an adult. We got all these dream sequences about those things. Um, but it just doesn't, for me, it doesn't kind of cohere into a thing. Um, I don't know. There's a little bit too, he's trying to play it too much like a horror story and it's not really a horror story. It's something maybe worse. Uh, you know, it's, it's a childhood trauma story. So I don't know. I, I know that this is a story that people really like from Stephen King, but it, it doesn't doesn't do a lot for me. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, this story this story starts and you think it's going to take its time. You think it's going to be a story about character. Uh, you th- I, it starts almost as if it's going to be a novella. And then suddenly the main character is like, and, and then he summoned a demon and they took away and, and like the demon killed the greaser ghosts. Yeah. It, it feels really half-finished. It's strange. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and, and you know, thinking of something like Stand By Me, right, which comes, what, 10 years later, something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you can see him reworking this kind of thing, right? So the brother character, who's played by Kiefer Sutherland and in the film, right, his character and his, like, mean buddies, right, they're this crew again, mm-hmm. like 100% that crew, but it's put into the context of childhood trauma you're exactly right you know it is a character piece stand by me is not a you know what we would consider like a genre piece is closer to literary fiction Uh, and so it has time to kind of work out why these things are are bad and importantly spoilers for stand by me not a single demon in the whole thing Mm -hmm. um but uh 
but yeah, not not for me. Not my favorite story. Oh, speaking of not a single demon, Strawberry Spring. Mm-hmm. A narrator recounts a series of Jack the Ripper-like murders that occurred on his college campus during a strange early foggy spring when he was an undergraduate. Now that he is an adult, that strange kind of spring has come again. The murders have resumed, and the narrator suspects he may be the killer. Uh, the King Connection? Um... This idea of uh, sort of a, a, a series of cyclical, like a series of murders that occurs on like cyclical time or like with respect to a, a kind of returning phenomenon or something like that. Uh, we're going to see that again in It, where the the creature below Derry, Maine, uh, wakes up every, you know, 27 to 30 years, uh, does a series of murders and then goes back to sleep. Um, except here, obviously, we have this uh, suggestion that whatever this thing is that the narrator isn't um the narrator isn't like trying to play coy right this is almost at, what what happens is at the end the final line is uh you know he it's a confessional like he he is confessing to you that he's realized he may have some other kind of like personality inside of him that is waking up during during these spring nights uh and he's horrified by it so is this story any good yeah, I think this is pretty good. It's it's a nice, like, tense little, uh, I mean, it's a nice, tense little, like, murder story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this might be, this is certainly in my top ten favorite Stephen King short stories. Hmm. Um, I think it's really good. I, I, I think that there is a economy of language in this that is not represented in any mm. of these other stories. Like, he, he really is describing the location, but he's describing the location uh, not in the way he normally would, right? Which is like the camera is pulling back and is kind of sweeping around the region. He's not doing his normal narrative thing. He is talking about how people live in that place and where they're going and how they're doing it. You know, it's what, 10, 12 pages, something like that as a story. It, but you very quickly get a sense of like, where is it that all these college students go? What is their relationship to this space? How do they navigate it? What are the places where they're vulnerable? Uh, you know, what are the places where they feel safe but are in fact vulnerable? You get all this information in a really, I think, talented way that um, I, I think this just shows what Stephen King can be doing when he is, as you were saying earlier, kind of firing uh, on all pistons. Um, I like it a lot. I think it's a great, great short story. I don't know about like the, you know, the. I think it's a, a neatly packaged in the end, maybe a little bit too neatly packaged in the end. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I just think I really enjoy the way it is written mm -hmm. um, and the kind of, um, I don't know, the, the genre tailness of it. You know, do you want me to talk about the ledge? Of course I do. <sighs> a man is threatened with jail. Or a walk around a building on a balcony or a ledge. I don't know why I wrote balcony. On a on a ledge. He goes for it. And he has to fight some pigeons. <laughs> he makes it. And the guy who put him up to it tries to double cross him. The guy wins a fight and then offers the double crosser the exact same deal. Um, you know, it, it literally is. This is an elaborate setup to get a man to walk on a like four foot wide ledge all around a like, you know, think about like the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I, I don't know why that's my <laughs> example of it. The Empire State Building yeah. might be better, right? You know, a big building of that size with a huge penthouse on the top floor 
walk around the whole thing on this ledge. That's that is the bulk of the story. There are there's four pages dedicated to him struggling to get past some pigeons. The pigeon fight is so stupid. It's one of the stupidest things. Uh, there's no king things in here. Like I, I, there was nothing I thought that is uniquely kingy about it. Other than this is a bad idea pursued <laughs> as if it's a really good idea. Um, and um, I think in general it's like pretty good in the sense like I like the conversations that happen between him and the guy, but the pigeon stuff like really it's like a weight in the middle of the thing. It's hard to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I cannot, I can't belabor the point about the pigeons enough. It, we, we get like a blow by blow of like, and the mama pigeon flew up and pecked me on my neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the papa pigeon I had to kick at weekly because that's the only way I could kick. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, uh, it belabored. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the, just the one thing that I wanted to add is like, this is, I, I want to say if there's a king thing here, this is king in a mode that we actually haven't seen him do a lot at this point in the show, um, which is hard-boiled Stephen yeah. King. Um, yeah, and that's where, like, that's what makes the story end up, like, that's what makes the pigeon stuff so bad, is that Stephen King can do kind of, it because it's kind of a, a, a noirish, hard-boiled crime story, and then mm-hmm. suddenly, like, the... It's, it's all very sort of by the numbers, and then suddenly the protagonist has to fight some pigeons. Yeah, just just because, you know, it's almost like uh, tin page ruley, right? Stephen King just knows that some sort of action needs to happen here, but he did not know what to do because the man is on a ledge. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what could threaten him? Um, other than the wind, which also gets its own page. <laughs> um, and so it must be pigeons. And it's like, no, man, come on. Yeah. Just, just don't, but yeah, there's, you know, I like the, the noiry kind of stuff and we're going to read some of that. There's even another kind of noiry kind of story in here, but, uh, yeah, not supernatural in any kind of way. Just weird. Mm -hmm. Speaking of weird, the lawnmower man, a bitter middle-aged man hires someone to mow his lawn, but the guy is a huge weirdo, might not be fully human, and strips naked and crawls along the ground behind his automated lawnmower, eating the grass clippings and any small animals the lawnmower happens to run over. When the main character objects to this, uh, the lawnmower man turns his sights on him, and it does not end well for him. Uh, the King Connection, uh, this actually, t- uh, there, there's one uh, big one, I think. Uh, the In the previous episode, we talked about Rage, the Richard Bachman novel. There's a minor character in that book who only appears in a flashback, um, but he is described as like, he, his face is described as like a lawn boy lawnmower, which is apparently, like, I don't know if this is a real brand of lawnmower that Stephen King was familiar with, um, but... Uh, it's it's a character who is kind of a bully when when all of the all of the characters in that novel it's like a flashback to when they're like 10 or something like that so this is like the known bully and his face is described as looking like the the front of this lawnmower and when he's bearing down on charlie the narrator it's like you know being run over with a lawnmower uh so there's that and if you wanted to you could also probably connect this uh to the the dog man from the shining in in terms Mm -hmm. of like this weird absurd thing crawling on the ground um is it any good I actually think so, yes, right? I think this is, like, pure strain nightmare nonsense, and it whips. Uh, 
I, I do not agree. All right. So there's our second disagreement. I, it just doesn't. Uh, nope, nope, I nope. Mean, we can't can, talk about it. Yep. We'll talk about the. We'll talk about the thing. What is what is interesting to me about it? Maybe maybe I'll I'll say this. What is interesting about it to me is that the lawnmower man. I mean, I guess there's two things here. One is that the lawnmower man says that his boss is the god Pan mm-hmm. from Greek mythology. Yep. Which has doesn't have anything to do with lawnmowers or cutting the lawn mm-hmm. in any way. He's he's the god of parties. Um, so that's weird. The, and the other one is that this guy is uh, at least implied to be a satyr, mm-hmm. right? He's he has a a split, like a like a uh, his foot is cloven, which is really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like this mystical or, you know, mythological vibe to it, fantasy vibe to it. Whereas up until that information is revealed, it's science fiction to, to a certain degree, because it's like this lawnmower that goes on its own, right? It's like super loud and powerful. So there's something really weird going on with like what ideas pop up here. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's the one thing. The other thing I want to say is that it is baffling how this was turned into a film about vr <laughs> well i mean there is a reason that stephen king sued to get his name taken off of it <laughs> yeah. but but here's the thing i think i would sue to take get my name taken off of a one-to-one adaptation of the short story <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i'd want that either but we'll, we'll talk about that at the end um next story is quitters inc quitters incorporated um Summary is, uh, a guy meets, a man who smokes, meets an old friend, and that old friend says, hey, if you want to quit smoking, here's how you do it, and gives him the information of an organization that will um, torture his family and him if he continues to smoke. He stops smoking. <laughs> That's it. That's the summary. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the king, kingy part of it, like every line of this, I think bleeds king. I think that if we were to draw a stylistic connection between any of these short stories and much later Stephen King, this is the place to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, every every kind of paragraph has this like, and then we knew what else was going to happen, right? There, there's all this implied terror and violence throughout the whole thing because the, the people who are doing this are like, uh, former gangsters, basically. The idea is that uh, it's explained that basically it's like a 1930s mobster died of lung cancer and endowed this organization <laughs> to do all this stuff to people to make to help them quit smoking, right? So it's like using the, the mob's means of intimidation and violence and all this stuff in order for like a good social cause. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's this kind of like humorous, the, the exact thing that I just said there is that's funny, that's weird, right? Um, and Stephen King is, is, you know, he knows that. And so there's a little bit of humor in it, a little bit of, um, of, of, you know, implicit horror. I don't know. I think it's a great short story. I really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, very economical, very interesting. Yeah, I Uh, I agree. I don't think anyone else would write it. No supernatural stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. It's almost like a little bit of a, like King doing a little bit of like a Hitchcock parody or something is Mm -hmm. how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good story. I know what you need. 
A young woman in college finds herself courted by a nerdy boy who seems weirdly prescient about her moment-to-moment -moment whims, needs, and desires. After her current boyfriend dies in mysterious accident, she starts dating the weird guy, only to discover he killed her boyfriend with magic and has been forcing the romance on her also with magic and also kind of with psychic powers that he has. Um, he has both. He has both going on. Um, king connection. Um, well, here's a king connection for you. I'm going to read uh, the beginning from the beginning of the story. It's page 228 of my edition. Uh, this is the moment when the, the main character, Elizabeth, looks up to see um, this uh, this other guy, right? The, 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 the other character. Uh, he, she, she saw a rather nondescript young man in a green fatigue jacket. For a moment, she thought he looked familiar, as if she had known him before, etc., etc., etc. He was about her height, skinny and twitchy. Uh, he wasn't moving, but he seemed to be twitching inside his skin, just out of sight. His hair was black and unkempt. He wore thick, horn-rimmed glasses that magnified his dark brown eyes, and the lenses looked dirty. Now, wait a minute. What were well, you going to say, Cameron? That sounds like our good friend. Yeah. Steve. Yeah, it sounds sounds kind of little like uh, other than the height comment, which I'm not sure what we might do with because Stephen King, just for the record, is actually pretty tall. He's a pretty tall guy. Let it be known that for some reason I know that he's like six and a half feet. <laughs> um, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's a pretty tall guy. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, like Stephen King appears to have kind of written this villain of this story uh to resemble him when he is in college if you've seen pictures from Stephen King from about this time especially like uh like the green fatigue jacket like is very much the sort of thing that you could see Stephen King wearing when he was this age um I think that this is a weird choice because uh do I think this story is any good I think that this story could be better because it ends up playing with some implications and some themes that I am not sure it can lift. Mm -hmm. um, because, like, it is... So the the main character has a friend, um, like, you know, she's it's a very... Tip, it's a very, um, again, very sort of, like, almost movie-like way that this uh, story works, but she has a friend, her, like, roommate, who always kind of doesn't really trust this guy and is always kind of like, hmm, but have you thought about and have you thought about... And she eventually, like, looks into things. Um... And she's the one who finds out that he is, like, apparently psychic. And she just accepts this. She, like, literally, like, at the end of the story, <laughs> she uh, comes to, to, to the protagonist. And she's like, hey, listen, I've done some research into this guy. And it appears that he is psychic. Uh, and he is, I think, using his psychic powers to, like, romance you. Um, but uh, she says, uh, I think aptly, right, like this is rape. Um, and to the story's credit, it, it doesn't like justify that, right? The story knows that it's wrong. But as I said, I, I think this story is kind of um, punching above its its weight class in, in, in a way. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't like this story. I don't I, not strongly. Mm -hmm. You know, but like, there's a lot of uh, it's a slow burn for what it ends up being, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's a, I think a lot, you know, the way that you were talking about uh, um, 
sometimes they come back a minute ago, right? Like, we do a lot of setup for it to be magic and psychic stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, yeah, not not for me either. Um, uh, I I do think it's interesting though. Something that that getting to about this point in the collection that I realized is that uh, one, it's fascinating that this is the only psychic stuff that we see in the book, mm. since Stephen King is so obsessed with psychic things in all of his novels. True. Um, and so I, I thought that was interesting and it's not really like TK or anything like that. Right. It's like mind reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it, it kind of made me think, right. You know, there's something about certain ideas that Stephen King has that will carry a novel for him where other ideas just won't carry a novel. And I'm curious about if we're going to start seeing more patterns of that going forward. Right. Like plagues and disease carry novels for Stephen King. Mm-hmm. We we're going to see that quite a few times uh you know the stand and after telekinesis is like a mover of plot will carry a novel for him Mm -hmm. but like some of these more absurd ideas i guess just just can't Mm -hmm. you know uh you know they're not the engine even if they show up and so it's interesting to me like what ideas about the world become you know a central motor that will drive a plot for stephen king where he just doesn't even attempt it with some other stuff or or he does attempt it and it doesn't work out you know we'll read a few of those books too Children of the Corn. A T-bird owning couple (laughs) on the brink of divorce turn off the main road and end up deep in the corn. They run into a fundamentalist cult of children who worship some kind of corn god. There's also some Logans running here. (laughs) Um, That's it. Okay. (laughs) They get sacrificed to the corn god at the end. Um, uh, the, The kinky thing here is a quote. Uh, this is perfect King. This is like King knocking it out of the park with language, right? Because the, the kind of thing in question here is that these are fundamentalist kids, right? They're, they're explaining their religion in the language of fundamentalist Christianity, but they, you know, worship this corn God out in the corn. Uh, it, it, which walks behind the rose, I think is the term used, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is a quote, you know, that's going through the mind of the main character as he's being like hunted by these feral kids. Um, quote, but how could such a thing be kept secret? How could it go on? How, unless the God in question approved? <laughs> and that's like, you know, we we're talking about like nihilist Stephen King, right? Like what if God doesn't exist, but the God behind the rose does. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, it, it makes the world. Um, or, you know, I don't know, something has impacts on the world. Um, I think it's a great, I think it's a great story. Um, I, I think maybe it's a little longer than it needs to be, even though it does move really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a little longer than it needs to be. I, what I think is the thing that takes it for me from being kind of a whatever story to being a good story is the little stinger at the end. And it's very similar to the one in Graveyard Shift that I was talking about before, right? So it's after the main characters have been sacrificed and die. And then these kids are talking to one another and like the prophet child receives information from the God in the corn who is telling them that, uh, you know, previously when you turn 19, you had to walk into the corn and be, be eaten by the God. And because of like how they mess this up, basically that age is being lowered to 18. And so like they kind of look around and they're talking a little bit. And like one is, is, you know, thinking about 
uh, his his wife, you know, that, that he has, and she's pregnant, and, you know, about that. And then we get some interiority of her. This is Stephen King's narratorial voice kind of going around, right? We get some interiority of her, and she's thinking, like, you know, maybe that God in the corn is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe it's not good. Um, and then the story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that little piece that really does it for me, right? That you, that there's all of this cult behavior violence, you know, they're very much like, this exoticized fundamentalist cult, but then you get to see things from their perspective and it doesn't make things better. You know, it's not like, Oh, I get it. I understand. You know, I can empathize with these, these, uh, corn worshipers. You don't get that. You just get more information. Well, it makes you be like, shit. Yeah. I mean, what's brilliant about it, right. Is that it is, um, it is essentially like her position as a child stuck in a fundamentalist cult is not any different than if she like whether it's like the christian god or this like devil thing out in the corn right like because you know there are children who are in these sorts of situations who think to themselves like man i am i something's wrong here right i don't think this is right but then her kind of next move is but what do i do about it because there's no one around me who who would believe this or who would feel this way right i'm alone like this and it's um you know, it's it's humanizing in that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's great. Mm-hmm. The last rung on the ladder. The narrator, a successful corporate lawyer, still reeling from his sister's suicide by jumping from a roof in L.A., recalls an instant when, while growing up poor on a farm in Nebraska, he saved her from falling to her death from a broken ladder in their hayloft. They became estranged as they grew up, and the narrator has just received a letter from her where she intimates her decision to complete suicide. However, the letter was delayed because he never updated her on his addresses when he moved. King connection here. Um, We just talked about Nebraska. Um, uh, Children of the Corn takes place in Gatlin, Nebraska. Mm. Uh, In fact... Very close to Gatlin, Nebraska, because Gatlin will get mentioned in a few Stephen King stories. I don't think it's necessarily uh, always like filled with evil children, but it's a it's a location that gets name dropped a few times in other places. Uh, very close to Gatlin is a town called Hemingford Home, where the narrator of this story lives. Hemingford Home is also where a character from The Stand lives. Uh, Mother Abigail lives outside of Hemingford Home, I believe. Uh. There's your connection, right? King geography. Uh, is this story any good? Um, I think it's 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 pretty good. It's not great. It is kind of sad. Um, I am not sure what the story is necessarily going for and if it achieves it, but in terms of, like, you know, setting me up, giving me the characters in the situation, like, I get it, and I get why it's sad. Yeah, to, you know, I... I think I'm of an, I think I would describe it the exact same way that you just described it, and I would say I didn't like it. <laughs> um, but but you know I it it reads like Stephen King trying to do literary fiction. Yes, and he's just not good at it, right? Like that that is not a critique. He's a, he is, as we know from the Stephen King's uh, The Shining, he's the master storyteller, mm-hmm. right? I I you know I don't have a problem with Stephen King in a general sense, but. Um, yeah, I just don't like this to me is just spinning wheels the whole time. I, I, I don't get a lot of development of character and good God, the like I forgot to update you in my address book stuff mm-hmm. at the end. That is like ultimate cop out to me. 
Oh, we'll we'll put that one in the in the mediary zone since we both have the same opinion, but we differ on whether or not our opinion is this story is good or this story is bad. Um, the man who loved flowers. A man is buying flowers for his lover, but really she's been dead for ten years, and he's killing women with a hammer. Mm-hmm. There's no kinginess to it. Um, and I literally wrote my notes. This is not worth talking about. <laughs> yeah, this story is so weirdly characterless. Yeah, there's just it's literally one that you know that description is exactly it. There's like all of this elaboration of like talking about his lover and then talking to the guy and buying the flowers and all this stuff. And he's just hallucinating. The other women are her and then he murders them. Mm -hmm. It's that's it. It's not, it's not a good or bad story. It's just not interesting. Mm -hmm. One for the road. A couple of old Mainers waiting out a blizzard in a bar encounter a man from out of town who says his car went off the road a few miles away, leaving his wife and daughter trapped and waiting on the edge of an abandoned village known as Jerusalem's Lot. And the sun has already gone down. So the king connection here, obviously, is uh, Salem's Lot is back for the second time, and this time it is post-events of the novel. The The vampires are still there. Uh, we get a whole kind of, like, brief update, right, where... Uh, People who live around the lot know that there is something wrong in the lot. And so people in those towns, like when they go out at night, they carry their crucifixes and their St. Christopher's medallions and their Bibles. Like people keep those things nearby and they know that if you're going by or through the lot at night, you don't talk to people that you see uh, and so on and so forth. And also they mention... Um, you know, there was a fire a few years back, which is the fire that uh, gets set at the end of Salem's Lot uh, by Ben and Mark. And they say that, you know, after the fire, things were better, right? Think Like, people weren't reporting as much, like, weird and anomalous stuff, uh, but then it just started back up again. So more to the, the, the idea that, you know, despite your best intentions, despite your best plans, despite whatever Mark and Ben wanted to do and what they succeeded and whatever they failed at, uh, they burned down part of the lot. They burned down the Marston house. We know that. Uh, but the vampires stuck around, and they're still in Salem's lot. And the vampires at, are still there at the end of this story because they get the entire damn family. Yeah. Is it any good? For my money, uh, I think that this is the best story in the collection uh, because I think it is... It, it's not an EC comic story, right? There's some kind of emotion here. But Stephen King is also kind of stepping outside of he's writing in first person he's writing uh, an older male character uh, an old mainer so he's kind of he's he's giving um voice and uh he's doing character through voice in a way that uh, we don't see him do a lot having read the mostly the novels up until this point and uh it's a it's a weird fun little story in the sense that like it, it, it does that thing that you were talking about at the beginning where it's like, here's a problem. Here's a, here's a couple of elaborations of that problem. And then they died. Um, except here it's, here is a problem. Here's some elaborations of that problem. Uh, I survived, but the problem is still out there and I can't stop thinking about the problem. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I, I agree. This is a, I think it's a great short story. Um, I think this is like, I, I, I guess I don't know. 
hard to hard to abstract this from like what I know, obviously, about Salem's Lot and my enjoyment of, of Salem's Lot. But I, I think that this is for the exact reasons that you just said. I think this is a really good like instructional piece of of short fiction mm-hmm. of like how to introduce the inciting incident or whatever, right? But how to introduce the the problem and then allow people to kind of talk around it the stuff where they're trying to warm the guy up you know because he's been walking through the snow and they kind of like are looking back and forth at one another and they're like you turned off where and he's like uh you know back you know six miles and they're like was there a sign he's like yeah jerusalem's lot and they're and they just like don't talk about it Mm -hmm. and they're like you know we know they're like fuck Mm -hmm. no like all of that is so good. Um, it's such great kind of character writing, as as you're saying. Um, yeah, I think this is a great story. The final story is the woman in the room. But as I explained to you, Michael, I forgot to read the story. Uh oh. <laughs> so, uh, do do you want to summarize the story? Yeah. Um, the woman in the room is uh, a. A uh, story about a man whose mother is dying from stomach cancer, um, and she's recently had uh, a procedure that, uh, on the one hand, is supposed to lessen her pain, and on the other hand, has uh, kind of ruined her her motor skills and her hand eye coordination um, because it they it involved like doing something to her brain, um, and the. Uh, main character feels very very sad about his his mother dying and kind of her being in this she's dying very slowly it's very hard for him to watch and he reminisces on his uh growing up and sort of like this was the woman who raised me and my brother right after our father left or died or whatever the father's not in the picture um and at the end of the story the main character gives his mother a some pills that she more like some pills that she shouldn't be taking and definitely more of them than she should be taking. Uh, and it's very strongly suggested. Like they have a conversation about this. Like she knows what he's doing, uh, and he knows what he's doing and it is, it is euthanasia. Um, and so he like leaves the room and then like walks down the hall and waits for the, um, you know, for him to be, get called back because something had happened. Um, and that's mm-hmm. the end of that story. Is it good? I need to be careful here. Uh, out of respect to Stephen King, uh, I think, because uh, I think this is a very personally important story for him. As I told you, uh, this is essentially based on his feelings of helplessness watching his own mother uh, die of cancer. It's interesting that we've talked about a couple of times on this show, like it for, in Rage, for instance, and other parts of, of the other novels, um, of being like, oh, Stephen King is writing wish fulfillment here. Um, and that is really what this story is. Uh, but it's a very weird wish to fulfill on the one hand, right? Like, uh, writing this story where I do the thing that I didn't do in real life, which was like, help my mother take her own life as she is, is dying. Um, it's, it's weird in, in that way. Uh, and then it's also attempting, um, more of a literary fiction, uh, kind of angle on this stuff, uh, than, other stories right there's no supernatural element here like the the closest kind of story to this tonally is the last rung on the ladder probably mm-hmm. um and it goes over i think about similarly in the sense of i understand kind of what is happening here 
I am not sure that, like, I necessarily enjoyed this story. Um, although I sort of, I understand and sympathize, um, you know, with with kind of the emotional content of it. So. Hmm. Uh, the other important thing, I guess, right, because there's not much of a King connection here uh, explicitly, but uh, this is the story that puts King into conversation with the film director, Frank Darabont, who ends up uh, optioning the rights to make this into a short film uh, for $1. And, of course, Frank Darabont is the guy who goes on to uh, make uh, the Shawshank Redemption, is kind of the big one, Uh because that real and that tells you something, right? Uh, I think Frank Darabont uh, sees kind of these more emotional uh, Stephen King stories, these more literary Stephen King stories, and he he's someone who really sees the potential there, and he unlocks that. I think uh, in a way that, frankly, I don't necessarily uh, in, in, with this story. Yeah, that it, it, Darabont's relationship to King is so strange to me because you're right. I mean, he almost exclusively adapts these kinds of stories from King, right? So um, the other one I'm looking right here, um, he does The Green Mile as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and The Mist, which is, you know, more of a traditional King story, but also has a huge kind of like interpersonal element to it. You know, that story, well, if you're Frank Darabont, I think maybe is the way of saying this. If you're Frank Darabont, it works like a locked room, you know, kind of drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how the the film works out. Whereas I don't know if necessarily that's what um, what the, how the story works. But in any case, um, it's an interesting thing. And and you were telling me that um, you know a huge number of films get optioned out of this short story collection. Yeah, uh, I mean, like let's just let's just run through this real quick. Uh, Jerusalem's Lot. Um, they're actually filming. Uh, I think maybe a TV series of that right now. Hmm. Um, with Adrian Brody. Someone in the Discord mentioned that. I don't remember who, but shout out to, to you. Um, they were filming it near uh, their their hometown. Um, Graveyard Shift gets made into a movie. Uh, I mean, Actually, I should say, I think almost, almost every single short story in this collection probably got made into a student film because King in, uh, begins the practice that I just mentioned with Darabont, uh, where he will let you as if you're if you're a student filmmaker or you just want to make a movie and you're not going to you just want to like show it at a festival or something you're not going to try to market it or distribute it uh, you can option film rights to his short stories for one dollar and he does that uh, with this collection and Frank Darabont is one of those people uh, but uh, see the mangler gets made into a movie uh trucks gets made to maximum overdrive which is going to be our bonus episode for this month uh mm -hmm. when you are hearing this right now you can go over to our patreon patreon.com slash range touch and listen to us talking about maximum overdrive directed by stephen king mm -hmm. written by stephen mm -hmm. king based on the story by stephen king special guest mm -hmm. appearance by stephen king yeah it's it is uh one long uncut rail of Stephen King. <laughs> uh, uh, sometimes they come back, gets made into a movie, and becomes a franchise. There are like three or four of those. Uh, really? Yeah. Like, oh. obviously, the second one is called Sometimes They Come Back Again. Um, <laughs> they keep on coming. <laughs> uh, Strawberry Spring, The Ledge. Uh, the Lawnmower Man becomes a movie. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
then Children of the Corn becomes several movies. Uh, yeah, a huge franchise. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that's it for the big ones. But uh, as I said, like, you, just some of those, some of those franchises, really, like Children of the Corn, I think, for instance, are, are real iconic, like Stephen King movie franchises. Yeah, they really, and what's interesting about Children of the Corn, too, is they really take that last little bit that I find so interesting, and that's where the sequels come from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sequel, sequels are all about, like, Malachi and <laughs> Isaiah um, and all of their, like, stuff going on. Um, yeah. All right. Well, what, what, what is our, uh, death match about? What were our disagreements? All right. So we disagreed on two stories, gray matter, which mm-hmm. I did not like very much. And you did. So you get, you get your rebuttal. Mm-hmm. What is good about gray matter? Um, I don't think Stephen King at this point in his career is very good at writing action. I think he gets better at writing action in a general sense. But I think right now, right, for the most part, he actually doesn't write action. He'll just be like, a thing happened. Mm -hmm. Or he'll just off-screen it, right? So think about um, Susan Norton, is that her name, Mm -hmm. in uh, Salem's Lot? You know, think about her getting grabbed by... um, barlow right that's like entirely off screen Mm -hmm. and that's like a huge action moment uh, of the thing or um uh cody is it yeah yeah cody falling and and getting impaled you know that's a big piece of action but we just don't see it Uh, it gets off screen and i think that's why stephen king is you know good at horror is that he knows when to give you the gory details and when not to but a lot of the time the gory details are kind of after the fact right like we're witnessing the the kind of post-mortem uh if you would um what's cool about gray matter to me and why i really like it is that it both is very descriptive of like what's going on as this man is slowly turning into the blob um and then at the end there's like an action scene of it like or him it the thing uh, bursting out of the apartment and like getting into a little scuffle and a fight and they see that he's he's dividing and splitting in this kind of apocalyptic way um so I, i i like it a lot I just, in general, like the story. I think, like, this, the the uh, way it's narrativized, right, of, like, they're learning at the bar all this information about the guy, and they're like, oh, dang, something's going on, and they have to go intervene, and then it actually culminates, unlike so much Stephen King stuff, with real action. Mm-hmm. I just think it's good. Uh, you know, I like it. I, I wouldn't say that it's, like, the world's best story. Um, but I liked it quite a bit more, especially in comparison in the field here, right? Like compared to the field in this collection for me, it's, it's pretty good. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've necessarily persuaded me, but I understand where you're coming from. Cause I think for me, this story is just, it's, uh, I mean, this story feels like a mixture of one for the road and I am the doorway, right? It's kind of like two ideas like those two two elements from those stories like hooked together um Mm -hmm. and i just didn't and it's not that i didn't feel the connection but like the the basic conceit of the guy drank some skunked beer and now he's turning into the blob just felt like too goofy for me i think is really what it is yeah, I, I think the thing that distinguishes it, because I think you're right, it is similar to, to I'm the Doorway in, in broad strokes. I think what is different to me about it is like, you know, the King difference, if we're making our, our advertisement for Stephen King as a person, you know, the King difference. Mm-hmm. Um, what that is here is the way that the story is told, right? I think this would be straight up terrible 
if it were in the first person. Mm -hmm. But it's all of these partial glances. And you're like, the kid is talking about his dad, right? And he's like, you, you know, he's got a blanket over him and he can see him like, increasing in size and decreasing, like kind of you know uh, undulating under there and he's like he doesn't know what is happening right and we can intimate what is happening but it's his inability to speak about it right and he talks about being able to see his dad or watching his dad like eat a dead cat that's been stored in the wall mm -hmm. that to me like is beyond and into the goofiness of it but i don't know there's there's something to me about you know, I think I'd probably like I Am the Doorway more if it were told in this kind of style and not in this kind of tortured first person. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I like it. Okay. Uh, and then the next one we disagreed on, uh, which is another one that I, I was the reader for, uh, Lawnmower Man, which you disliked. Uh, yeah. And so tell me, tell me a bit more. We already talked about sort of like the generic problems here and so on. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about like what you don't like about this? Yeah, I think it. I think it, it probably is in the generic problem that to me this just feels like, and I feel like this is going to be the exact thing that uh, you know our other um, our, our other pseudo disagreement, right? In that I, f the exact description that I could make of the thing, we would both agree on, uh -huh. right? But it would just be I think it is bad, and you think it's good, right? The, the combination of this, like, I, you know, whatever, gonzo nightmare, I, I don't remember what exactly you said, but basically this, like, the thing just, like, starts and then builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and, builds and it gets more absurd as it goes along. It, it, it feels to me like, um, you know, this is a, a, anachronistic, but it feels like a family guy skit to me. <laughs> Or it's like, and here's some, and, and here is an automatic lawnmower that's that's scary, and here's like an evil hick, and you, did you know what he gets naked, and you know what else he's also you know uh, uh, a denizen or or an, an underlaying of the god Pan, <laughs> and although I will say you know I didn't say this before, but um, I did like that the law that it's implied that the lawnmower goes inside and murders the man in his own living room. Yes. I do like that. I think that's a good touch that that the guy killed him with a lawnmower. Mm -hmm. Like the cops at the end who are looking at the crime scene are like, looks like someone drove a lawnmower in here. Yes, uh, I like that a lot. And they say they like drove the lawnmower all over the living room. And in my mind, it's like, you know, fucking Looney Tunes. And it's like tire tracks on the wall. Mm -hmm. And in the little like universe that the story is set up, there could be tire tracks on the wall. Like, I don't know what the rules are. Maybe that's it. I've talked myself into like a description. I don't know what the rules are, and I don't like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I like this story. Um, I like the story kind of a lot because it is just like so weird and out there and and, and, and incoherent, right? For for all the reasons, as, as you said, like for all the reasons you dislike it are kind of reasons that I like it. Um, I, I like uh, the... So the, the lawnmower man himself, right, talks about uh, something about, like, uh, human... Basically, the way he, he talks to the, the main character, the protagonist, uh, and the way he kind of explains, like, what, what he's up to and what he's doing is the language of sacrifice. Like, the, the implication mm -hmm. to me is that all of the, like, pagan gods and all of their creatures... Uh, did not go away, right? It's almost like a Neil Gaiman story um, uh, in that, like, these things are still out there, but they have ha they have had to find other ways to, like, sustain their worship. 
Um, and that is what this is. And it just so happened that this guy called the wrong number in the classified ads and got selected to be a, a pagan uh, sacrifice. Uh, because this is like, you know, he's the, the, the lawnmower man is like a satyr, but he's also using this weird advanced autonomous, uh, uh, lawnmower. Um, and then, uh, the other thing to kind of note there is that I believe King is trying to do a play off of, um, a, a novella called The Great God Pan by mm -hmm. Arthur Macken, who is a... A Welsh weird fiction horror author who is uh, in influential on Lovecraft. Um, and uh, one of the things in that story, like uh, in The Great God Pan, the the shapes of a person's feet pay, play a, a role in kind of a revelation of certain things that have happened in that story. Um, mm -hmm. And that happens, Not it's not exactly a revelation, right? But we get the same detail presented again uh, with, with the lawnmower man where the main character looks at his feet and is like, wait a minute, do you have like cloven hooves? Um, so there's, there's that, right? There's my like... The thing that I always do when I'm reading is like connecting everything to everything else. Uh, and I always get my own kind of enjoyment out of that. But then also in a broader picture... I just think I really like the idea of, like, stumbling into bizarre techno-pagan nightmare. It's like, it's like having someone describe their Shadowrun game to me. <laughs> I don't care for it. And I like Shadowrun. I generally like, you know, Shadowrun-y kind of stuff. But I don't think Stephen King is my Shadowrun author. Maybe that's, maybe that's it for me. Yeah. Well, to me, it's like... What makes it work for me is that it starts out like normal Stephen King, like middle class family house in the suburbs stuff, and then the Shadow Run stuff comes in, and mm -hmm. like that's that's what it is. And it's again, uh, you know, I don't think I'll convince you with this, but like that's what it makes it work for me is precisely the the egregious juxtaposition of material and tone. I'd like it more if there were techno helps. <laughs> what can I say? Oh goodness. So Cameron, tell me a little bit about uh, what our what our listening selections were this go around. What was mm -hmm. Uncle Stevie's mixtape? Yeah. Um, well, we've got we got a few things. I wrote down everything I came upon once I started looking for it. Um, so I might have missed some. You know, apologies to people if you're looking for your ratings. But I, I went and listened to all these songs too. Um, what's interesting to me about this rendition of uh, the additional songs uh, on good old Uncle Steve's uh, content platform here mm -hmm. is that uh, these are all big songs. You know, for the most part, you know, that who was it? Marty Robbins? Who, who was who was our Hey, Mr. Son? Uh, uh, no, that was Bobby Sherman. <laughs> Bobby Sherman. Who's Marty Robbins? <laughs> Marty Robbins, I think, is the guy who sang the Rockabilly song in Salem's Lot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm just kidding everything. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, uh, but but yeah, so none of these, I don't think, are hitting the the capability or the talent of Hey Mr. Son, which is like truly still top tier music. Um, but these are much more famous. Uh, and, you know, I think songs that we are familiar with that have, that have, quote unquote, stood the test of time. I know exactly why I just said Marty Robbins. It'll be very clear in just a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, first song that showed up, uh, the Rolling Stones, Angie. Good song. Hmm. Perfect, perfectly fine. I'm going to give that three stars. Okay. Um, 
Credence Clearwater Revival's Born on the Bayou. Pretty good song. Um, you know, uh, really made the water boy work as a, as a feature <laughs> film. Uh, three stars. Marty Robbins. <laughs> uh, this is why I came up. Love is Blue. This song is terrible. This song is awful. Please do not listen to it. It is extremely boring, but it apparently was a hit in the, I think, the 60s. Um, one star. The Beatles. Hey Jude. I don't care for it. One star. Not my song. Stephen King loves it, though. Yeah, I know. God, this is going to be... It's, this is the first of many times that Hey Jude is going to show up on this mixtape. Simon and Garfunkel. Scarborough Fair. One star. Also don't care for that song. <laughs> It's, and I even thought, so, you know, I've heard Simon and Garfunkel quite a lot in my, in my time. Um, and I thought, maybe I've got this wrong. Like, I should actually go back. I should listen to it. I should give it a fair shake. And I made it about 15 seconds in. It's terrible. It's just awful. <laughs> I, I, I just don't get it. Um, and the last one I got is uh, Louis Armstrong, Hey, Look Me Over. Um, this song, I won't give a star rating. Uh, because if you like Louis Armstrong, then you're going to like this song. Mm. If you do not like Louis Armstrong doing the thing that Louis Armstrong does, then you will not like this song. Um, so you can self-evaluate on your own. Note to all the, the Louis Armstrong haters in our audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can hate it on your own time. But like objectively, we know. I ran it through the system. I got all the numbers, right? Like... I filled out a couple uh, Likert scales. I did a double blind review, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Scarborough Affair is terrible. We know <laughs> that. That is objective fact. But Louis Armstrong, there's a little bit of room for aesthetic interpretation there, you know. Um, you know, I, I had to read Kant's third critique again to figure out where that was, and I thought it was more important to let the fans determine what they thought. But again, using, um, you know, many other techniques, uh, skills, ratings, capabilities, instruments, Simon and Garfunkel, one star. Okay. <laughs> but that's all I got. That's all. That, that, but that, but I think it is interesting, like I was saying, that a lot more popular music, you know, what we would think of as like, quote unquote, standing the test of time music in this. Interesting. In these short yeah. stories. Yeah. Huh. Something to think about as we move forward, uh, because next month we're going to be talking about The Stand. Yeah. So uh, get reading if you're reading along. Actually, hopefully, I I hope you started reading uh, earlier because the stand is a long one, uh, and I'm sure because people will have a question about this. We are going to be reading the original 1978 printing of the stand, which we went out of our way to acquire because it is out of print. You can't get it anymore. If you buy the stand today, you get the complete and uncut edition that was published in 1990. So we're going to read the original printing of The Stand, and that's what the next episode will be on. Don't worry if you read the complete and uncut one. We'll probably be referencing it throughout in various ways. Uh, But later on, in a couple years, we will uh, have another episode on The Stand Complete and Uncut, where we'll talk about... uh, the like that's the where the majority of our discussion about the the material that gets added back in uh that's that's where that will happen yeah and this you know we kind of talked about what we were going to do here and why and all that kind of stuff and part of the reason is like you know what what is lost and gained 
basically is kind of the question. And and to be frank, I you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest people go out and like hunt down the original stand because it's a little bit pricey, mm-hmm. honestly. I mean, you and I both bought um like trade paperbacks, you know, back pocket kind of paperbacks for it, right? And I I forget how much I ended up paying for it, but it was more than I thought that I would have to pay for a paperback book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, I don't know what it is right now, but uh, at the time that I bought mine, uh, paperback copies of the original printing of The Stand, and this isn't even like a first printing, right? This isn't like a, a you know, first paperback edition or anything like that. This is one that was printed, I think, like in the early 80s. Um, uh, this cost me like, I think $45. Yeah, I think I, I know I paid more than 30. And so maybe with shipping including, I, I ended in the forties, but yeah, so it probably the most expensive trade paperback book I own. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but that's what we're doing for you. And that's what your Patreon helps us do. Exactly. Patreon contributions. Yeah. If you want to help us, uh, <laughs> Find all the all the weird rarities, uh, or if you want to sustain our efforts, go to uh, patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, su- supporting us in whatever way is deeply, deeply appreciated. Even a dollar helps. But if you uh, back us at the $5 level, you will get access to the Just King Things bonus episodes, where Cameron and I watch a Stephen King movie adaptation and talk about it. And as we've already mentioned, the one for this month is Maximum Overdrive, based on the short story Trucks. And we have not recorded it yet, but if you have never seen Maximum Overdrive, like, it is, it is something. And I imagine our discussion about that will also be something. I've, I've already done some research here, right? Because, you know, just to give people an idea about what kind of archive you'll be accessing if you pay for $5 a month, uh, you can hear us talk about the most recent remake of Carrie. You can hear us talking about Return to Salem's Lot, which is a pseudo-sequel. I don't know. It's confusing. Return to Salem's Lot. Um, Stephen King's The Shining, a nearly five-hour miniseries made for TV that is Stephen King, quote-unquote, fixing uh, The Shining in a general sense by, you know, turning his own vision into uh, into a TV film with the help of Mick Garris, the director. Um, And if you've listened to that episode, or if you haven't, but just giving you some information for that episode, I both watched it and listened to the audio commentary, which gave me a lot of info. Mm-hmm. And so I'm committed now in the future for anything that has audio commentary to doing that. However, I don't believe Maximum Overdrive has any audio commentary. Oh, dang. I don't think he's ever done one. I, I've looked. Maybe, Michael, you can help me out, uh, you know, uh, to, to see and make sure. But I don't even believe that for the DVD version that they had one, uh, which is deeply unfortunate. But in the future, I will be I will be doing that. Because we're going to be watching the original Stand miniseries when we get to the Stand. I guess, except I think we're also, like, recording that episode when the new one starts airing. Yeah, that might be a thing. You might get two bonus episodes yeah. for that one, just to be frank. Because, you know, because the new one will be airing, but it won't be done by the time that we record. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. But that's all to say, there's a lot of value. <laughs> in in that five dollar <laughs> contribution so uh if you want to know more uh check us out on patreon.com slash range touch you can also get uh regular updates on twitter at range touch you can find me at warren is dead and you can find cameron at c kunzelman on twitter anything else we want to say before we we head out 
No, just uh, the classic catchphrase that we all know and love that's been established, of course, for the entire time that we've been recording the show, which is, we did this for the world. But also, we did it for Steve. <laughs> Catch you next time on Just King Things.